Thank you, Chad, so very much. And I want you to know that I am honored to be here tonight at the Fountainhead Church. I appreciate you so much. I appreciate your capable and energetic preacher. Chad has been in constant contact with me over the past few months preparing for this. And he, he, I'm very impressed with the ministry he has here and with the good work that you are doing. I am a marriage therapist. I have been for the past 20 years. I have a private practice. I've worked in community clinics. I've worked in managed care. I've worked in court order, uh, ordered counseling. And so I may not have seen it all, but I've seen most of it. And I'm here to tell you that our families are under a lot of stress and there are a lot of problems out there. And what I want to do in this series of lessons with you is share some material from the Word of God backed up by research. And I'm going to share some of my own personal experience to strengthen families and to enable us to have the kind of Christian homes that God wants. Now, I do have a PhD in marriage and family therapy, but I'm here to tell you it's not that complicated. And Chad, I'm going to give you a lesson tonight in marriage counseling, okay? It's not as hard as people make it out to be. There was a couple that came to see a preacher one time uh, because they had some problems in their marriage, and they were in the preacher's office. They were seated in front of his desk there, and the wife was complaining about the husband. She said, my husband, he's just not romantic. He just doesn't court me anymore. He used to be so affectionate. He, she's just going on and on. My husband used to be romantic, and he used to be good to me, and he used to court me and all of this kind of thing. And finally, the preacher just interrupted her and said, lady, stand up. And the lady said, what? He said, stand up. She didn't know what to do, so she stood up, and the preacher got up and went around from behind his desk, and he wrapped his arms around that woman, and he bent her over, and he gave her a big, long, passionate kiss, and then he let go of her, and the lady just kind of fell back in her chair like this, and she didn't know what to think. And the preacher went back and sat down, and he turned to the husband, and he said, Now, do you see what I just did? And the husband said, Yeah. He said, Well, now, your wife needs that three times a week. And the husband thought a minute, and he said... Well, I could bring her in on Mondays and Wednesdays. <laughs> but I fish on Friday. So, Chad, you try that. You see if it works, okay? All right, now that we've got that, if you've got your study guide, what I want us to talk about tonight is I want us to talk about what we can do, what faith offers uh, for families. We're going to talk about It Takes a Village, How Faith Strengthens Families. And we're going to talk about how to build a solid home. The Bible says in Psalm 127 and 1, Unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain that build it. And what we're going to learn tonight is that is absolutely true. You need to build your house on the Word of God, and you need to be in a good church family. What we're going to talk about tonight are the secrets of strong families and how particularly tonight, tomorrow we're going to come back to this and look at some of the other secrets. We're going to talk about how faith builds families here. I am very excited about some research that's been done over the past 30 years. In my field for a hundred years, researchers studied sick families and they focused on dysfunction. They studied Families that had gone off the rails. They studied families that had been poorly constructed. They studied families that were having problems. Well, that's valid. That's okay. That needs to be done. But then a couple of guys came along, and one of them was a member of the church, Dr. Nick Stanley and Dr. John Dufresne, and they asked a different question. Rather than saying, let's look at sick families to see what makes them sick, let's look at strong families to see what makes them tick. 
And so they went out and they studied strong families, healthy families, fully functioning families, and they said, what characteristics do these families have that make them healthy and that make them strong? And they studied thousands of families. And I mean, literally, the last I saw, their research had gone over 14,000 families. They started out in the United States. The movement has gone worldwide now. And after studying all of these families, healthy, strong families, they found six characteristics that they have in common. Healthy families spend time together as a family. They intentionally carve out time to be with each other. Tomorrow morning we're going to talk about why that's important and why it doesn't always happen in our families today. They express appreciation to one another. Tomorrow morning we're going to talk about communication. We're going to talk about the awesome power of appreciation. They have good communication patterns, lots of talking and listening. We're going to cover that. The fourth characteristic, they have a sense of commitment to one another. We're going to touch on that tonight. The fifth is they have the ability to deal with crisis in a positive manner. And the sixth, they have a high degree of religious orientation. They went back and checked that one twice because that one came as a little bit of a surprise. Because it almost sounds like a cliche. We've all heard the family that prays together, what? We've all heard that. The family that prays together stays together, but now it has been empirically validated. That's true. Strong families tend to have a high degree of religious orientation. They tend to be faith families. And so... We have to ask this question, why is that? Why are the healthy homes, why are the strong families the ones that have a strong faith in God? And let me give you a blank to fill in. If you're filling in the blanks on your study guide tonight, I really want to make sure you get this one down. You need to understand that strong families are not families without problems. I'm going to make the case later on in this series of lessons, all families have problems. There's something always going on in families. Somebody's always got the measles or the chicken pox, or somebody's always had a breakup or a heartache, or they broke their leg, or they got laid off. All families have problems. That's not the question. Strong families are families that solve their problems with the help of God. I really want to get that one pinned down here. Let me talk to you about five things that faith offers families. And if you are filling in your blanks, I want you to fill in this blank. Number one is permanence. Permanence. Faith teaches permanence. What does it mean to be a family? It means we're going to be there through all the what-ifs of life. We have a bond. We have a commitment. We have a tie that we're just not going to walk away from, that we belong to each other. Family ought to be, home ought to be the one place where you have a sense of security, where you know that you belong, and you know you can become strong because you know that you're loved. And you're loved unconditionally. And that's what faith teaches. Do you you realize Jesus got mad at the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 15 because they didn't take care of their families? You remember that? Matthew chapter 15, he says, you teach for doctrine the commandments of men. Now, we've used that for years to to, uh, establish the need for biblical authority, and rightfully so. But did you ever stop and think the issue that Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 15 is taking care of mom and dad? And he says, that's what it means to be a family. You're going to be there. Permanence. 
We don't walk away. Now, I am really glad that we're, we've got so many young people tonight because I really want to talk about one thing in particular tonight that I see as a counselor and as a preacher. I want to talk about the permanence of marriage. And I want to talk about one thing in particular that we can do to strengthen marriage. You remember Jesus said what God has joined together. Let man not separate. Now, if you really want an enduring marriage, you build it together on Jesus. You let God be the glue that holds you together. When you marry, I want all young people to hear me now. When you marry, marry a Christian. And don't just marry somebody who's got their name on the church road. You marry somebody who believes what they believe, who goes to church, who practices their faith. Marry a Christian. Don't be unequally yoked. It is so crucial. I see so many young people, they get all excited in the passion of youth, young, youthful romance, and they're going to make it work even though that partner's not a Christian. It doesn't matter. We, we love each other, and they get married, and then the first child comes along and that's where things get tough because then they realize it sinks in wait a minute the father of my children is not a Christian the mother of my children won't go to church with me we can't share the deepest the most intimate bond on earth and that is the bond of faith and let me particularly tonight talk about a problem the, one of the biggest social changes that I have seen in my lifetime, I'm 56 years old, has been the increase in the number of couples, both young and old, who are living together. It used to be called living in sin. You don't hear that much anymore. It used to be called shacking up. You don't hear that much anymore. Now it's called cohabitation. We're living together. It is amazing what has happened from 1960 to 2008, the rate of cohabitation, living together first before they get married, has increased 16-fold. In fact, about 7% of all couples right now in the United States are living together. The first couple experience for about 70% of all young Americans is living together. It used to be first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes Johnny with a baby carriage, and now what happens is it's all backwards. We get the baby carriage first, maybe they get married, maybe they don't, and maybe they fall in love, and maybe they don't. We actually had a young lady in El Dorado. We were trying to work with her unsuccessfully, as it turned out. And she had uh, gotten pregnant and was living with a guy. And uh, actually, my associate talked with her. And he said, well, have you thought about marriage? And she said, oh, no, I don't know him well enough. They have a child together, and they're living together, but she doesn't know him well enough to get married. Now, that, folks... We may chuckle at that, but that's the state of our society today. That is where we are. In fact, last year, the number of couples that are cohabiting jumped 13% to 7.5 million. Now, about half of those couples are either going to break up or they're going to go on to marry after two years. And 39% of those couples who are living together, who are not married, have children. About 20%, one out of every five American children, is going to at some point live in a household with mama and daddy, but they're not married. Or mama and daddy and mama's boyfriend, or daddy and daddy's girlfriend. They're not married. Our young people, we've got a whole generation of young people that are growing up thinking that this is normal now. 75%, now listen to this one, of all cohabiting couples will experience their parents' separation before they turn 16. That's compared to about one-third of all children born to marriage parent, married parents. That's a big difference, folks. Statistically, that's a huge difference. Now, let me tell you what's going on here. 
A lot of children today in this generation have grown up the children of divorce, and they're very cautious about commitment. Having seen their parents' marriage blow up, they are very cautious about making the commitment of marriage. People, young people today tend to marry later than my generation or the generation before that, and they tend to wait a long time. And a lot of them have got this in their mind. In fact, we had one boy who grew up in my church, and I found out he was shacking up with a, a girl, and so I went and I talked with him, and I said, you know, this is not God's will. He said, oh, yes, it is, Brother Dan. I figured this out. I said, all right, you explain this to me. He said, well, I have figured out that God doesn't like divorce. I know divorce is wrong, and I don't want to be divorced, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to live with this girl for a few years just to make sure that we're compatible, and then we will get married, and that way I won't get divorced. He had it all figured out. And I said, son, it doesn't work that way. Let me tell you the reality. The reality is 49% of Americans say living together makes divorce less likely. Almost half of Americans think what my young friend thinks. And that is we're going to have a trial marriage. 49, almost half, buy into that logic. They think that's what you do. You live together first. If that works, then you get married. Well, here's the reality. Here's what living together does to relationship quality. Okay? Men who cohabited premaritally, premaritally are less dedicated in marriage. If they marry, they're less dedicated than men who did not. Couples who cohabit premaritally before engagement, men are also less dedicated than their wives. Couples who prehabit premaritally before engagement are more negative when solving a marital problem. Couples who cohabit premaritally are between 1.26 and 1.86 times more likely to divorce, which means a huge increase. I had... Three weeks ago, a young lady from the local newspaper called me. She said, Dr. Dan, I'm doing a, uh, the, the Census Bureau just came out with the latest figures on couples and the number of couples who are living together and not married has increased dramatically. Do you have any comment? I, I'd like to quote you in that. I said, yes, ma'am. You put in there that those couples are having bit worse relationships and are more likely to split up. Never get married, or if they marry, they're more likely. She said, you're kidding. I said, no, ma'am. And I... She said, are you sure? I said, 1.26 to 1.86 times more likely. She said, I never knew that. She's about 22 years old. She'd never heard that. And to her credit, she put it in there, front page of the paper. She said, couples who live together first are more likely to split up, or if they get married, they're more likely to divorce. The odds of a couple still being together two years after the birth of a child are six times greater in marriage than cohabitation, which means there's a lot of children who are growing up in single-parent homes because mom and daddy shacked up and then they split up. The gold standard in premarital preparation, and I use this with all couples that I marry, is a, is a tool called Prepare and Rich. It is an inventory that gives me a 16-page printout of that couple's relationship over about 12 different dimensions of relationship quality. Dr. David Olson and Dr. Amy Olson-Sig analyzed a national sample of over 50,000 prepare enriched couples. They're sitting on a gold mine of material. They know the heartbeat of the couples of America, and they can tell you with precision the quality of the relationships of these couples. Let me tell you what they found out. Couples who cohabit have significantly lower scores on every dimension of relationship quality. They don't have good relationships. They have the lowest levels of premarital satisfaction. 
They had lower levels of personal happiness, higher rates of, divorce, of depression. They were less likely to be financially supportive of one another. They had more negative attitudes about marriage. Couples who lived together had lower scores on religious behaviors, personal faith, church attendance, joint religious activities, poorer communication skills, five times more likely to experience severe violence than married couples. They're less sexually committed or trustworthy. Men who are living together are four times more likely to be unfaithful to their partner. Women, eight times more likely. Now, I've got to ask you a question. Is living together first a good deal? No. No. God's Word always works. And if you want God's blessing, you better do it God's way. And I want the young people in particular to hear this. By the way, I want the older people to hear this. I'm going to tell you how common this is in American culture today. Any of y'all get AARP magazine? I do. Any of you get it? AARP, American Association of Retired Persons, go to the last newsletter you receive. Go to the financial column. Jane Bryant Quinn in AARP says there are some financial advantages to living together without getting married, and if your children object, have a wedding ceremony just to please them, but when they're not looking, don't sign the marriage license. So it's not just younger couples. It's older couples as well. What difference does it make? Let me tell you the difference. You don't test drive a potential partner and you cannot try out commitment. You're either committed or you're not. By the way, you remember my young friend who told me, Brother Dan, I got it all worked out. We're going to live together first and try it first. I said, son, it doesn't work that way. Two years later, he's back in my office. He's saying, I wish I'd listened to you. You were right. It didn't work. You know, what can you say at that point? Just... Start doing it God's way. Living together does not provide preparation for a strong, stable, satisfying marriage bond. It prepares couples for divorce. Now, the reason I've had to put this in my seminars is because the world has changed. And I have seen even young people who grow up in church buy into the thinking of the world. And I'm going to here to tell you tonight, the thinking of the world doesn't work. Do it God's way. If you want God's blessings, do it God's way. I'm st- I've got a Bible study going right now with a young couple. They've got a little girl. They're coming to our church. They want to be Christians, and they're living together. We got to the, third, the second lesson last two weeks ago, and the young man says, You know, Brother Dan, I need to be baptized. I said, Yes, you do. He said, Well, can I be baptized? I said, No, you can't. He said, Why not? Because before you be- can be baptized, you've got to repent. He said, well, what i got to repent of? I said, let's turn to Hebrews 13, verse 4. We turn to Hebrews 13, verse 4. Marriage should be honored by all in the marriage bed, kept pure, for God will judge all the adulterers and the sexually immoral. I said, are you married? He said, no, sir. I said, what do you need to do? He said, I need to get married. I said, yes, sir, you're right. I said, now, I'm a preacher and I'm a marriage therapist, and I'm going to help you with your salvation, and I'm going to help you with your marriage. We're going to get this made right. So it's common. I don't know about in Fountainhead, but it's common for couples that come in College Avenue in El Dorado, Arkansas. They've got kids. They've been living together. And some of them don't even have a clue. They don't even know. And I've got to take the Bible and show them. Folks, the world has changed. What does faith bring families? It brings permanence. Number two, if you're filling in your blanks, I want you to fill this one in. And that is priorities. Priorities. American families have got their priorities out of whack, and we've got to get them back. Priorities. And I'm going to suggest to you some healthy priorities. If you're filling in your blanks, here's what I want you to fill in. 
Who comes first? God. Put that in there. Seems like I remember Jesus said something about seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. You've got to put God first. Number two, after God, you put your mate. Then you put your children. Now, why do I say that? Well, God blesses us with these wonderful children for a short time and then they're grown and then they're gone. And one of the danger zones for marriages... I've seen this over and over and over again. It's about 20 years into the marriage. By the way, this is the second spike. The two, two biggest danger zones in marriage is the first six years. This is where you're going to have the most divorces. First six years and long about years 18, 19, 20. 20 years into the marriage, we're seeing a lot of couples split up. Why is that? Well, because they put the kids first and they didn't work on their marriage relationship. And when the kids grow up and the kids leave, you got a husband and a wife who don't have a relationship because they hadn't been working on it. They've been focused on the kids all this time. I like what Charlie Shedd said one time. He said the best thing, speaking to husbands, he said, or to men, he said the best thing you can do for your children is love their mother. And we need to get back to that priority, all right? Then the next one we're going to do here is work and then service. And I think if you get those priorities in line, and I see a lot of families here where we've got one or more people who put their work first, maybe the kids next, maybe the mate, and God somewhere down the list here. I have seen marriages break up because somebody was working overtime all the time, making as much money as they could, and in the meantime, another partner is getting neglected, and first thing you know, somebody comes along who's showing that partner the attention that his or, his or her mate's not showing them, and i got a problem. Because one of my specialties is affair repair. And I can't tell you how many dozens of couples I've worked with after infidelity. And it's not always the case, but sometimes it's the case. That what's happened is somebody's emotional needs aren't being met by their mate. And somebody comes along who's more than willing to take up the slack. All right? So faith tells us the proper priorities. And by the way, we're going to talk about this tomorrow. Making our family a priority means we must cut back on anything that contradicts our values or competes with essential family time. Now, just file that away because we're going to come back to that in the morning. I'm going to tell you some things that you need to hear. The third thing I want you to know that faith gives families. If you're filling in your blanks, you put down a pattern for life. And families desperately need, top of the back page, a pattern for life. Now, let me give you a new spin on an old scripture. Every preacher knows 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scriptures God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be completely equipped for every good work. Great scripture about the, uh, great scripture about the inspiration of the Bible. Every scripture knows, every preacher knows that one. Every Christian ought to know that one. That's the utility, the value, the usefulness of the scripture. However, I want you to back up just one verse to verses 14 and 15. Just before the verse about the inspiration of Scriptures, listen very carefully to something Paul tells Timothy. He says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise to salvation through Christ Jesus. And then he says, All Scriptures inspired of God, or is God breathed. Why does Timothy have confidence in the Scriptures? Well, we've always said because the Scriptures are inspired to God's Word. Well, that's true. 
But there's a second reason why Timothy has confidence in the Word of God. Paul says, you stake your life and your salvation and your eternity on that Word of God because you have seen it lived. Now, where did Timothy see it live? And the key word is from infancy. Does anybody know? His mother and his grandmother. His grandmother Eunice and Lois. Timothy had confidence in the Scriptures because he had seen them lived in the Scripture, in his family. Paul says in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 5, he says, I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and then in your mother Eunice, and now I'm convinced lived also in you. And there's a powerful lesson there, folks. There is a powerful lesson, and that is Sunday school is such a wonderful blessing. And y'all are going to bring your kids back tomorrow. Bring them back tomorrow at 9 o'clock. I want them in Bible class. Sunday school, vacation Bible school, Christian camps, those are all wonderful tools for raising good kids. But they're not the most important. Before your children hear the Word of God at church, they need to first see the Word of God in your life. And that is more powerful. I'll tell you tomorrow why that's more powerful, but that is more powerful by far. Has anybody here ever heard of the Suzuki method of teaching children? Anybody ever hear of teaching music? Anybody here ever heard it? Some of you have, the Suzuki method. Dr. Shinichi Suzuki has been called a miracle worker because he teaches little children to play classical music. I'm talking six, seven years old. He has had entire orchestras playing Vivaldi and Beethoven and Mozart. Mozart, Little children playing classical music and doing a wonderful job. How in the world can you teach little children to play classical music? Well, let me, let me tell you his method. It goes like this. He has the parents play classical music for the children until they're about two years old. So they grow up hearing it. They're exposed to it. Then, at the age of two, he starts a series of music lessons for the mother. Not for the child, for the mother. And he just lets the little two-year-old baby watch the mother learn how to play the violin. Oh, and then after the little baby watches the mother learn how to play the violin, he'll get a little tiny violin and give it to the child so the child can identify with his or her parents watching the mother play the violin. And then the lessons begin with a little child, but they only last for two or three minutes. And that's it. Just two or three minutes. And then he gradually extends the time until the little children are taking lessons that last for an hour. Now, I want you to think for a moment what Suzuki is doing there. I want you to think what he's doing. He is doing five things. In fact, he'll tell you these are the five steps. Exposure, imitation, encouragement, repetition, and refinement. Those are the five steps. I would submit to you tonight that those same five steps will work with anything you want to teach your children. And I will submit to you tonight that one of the reasons they will work is because the children see you practicing whatever you want them to learn. 
Now let that sink in for a minute. When the children see you in church, when they see you with your Bible study filled, your Bible lesson filled out, when they see you reading your Bible at home and praying over your meals, when they see you engaged in acts of Christian service, when they grow up being exposed to good, godly parents who are practicing their faith, it's going to be so much easier for the Bible school teachers and the Christian camp counselors to build on the foundation that you have laid. So, we have learned that it teaches a pattern for life. Number four is a purpose in life, a spiritual purpose in life, which our children desperately, desperately need. The wise man said, here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Every human being needs to know their purpose in life. Do you realize that there are a lot of folks who are wandering around in the darkness out there in the world who don't know that there's a God who loves them, who don't know that there's an eternity waiting for them, who don't know that God has blessed them with gifts that He wants used for His glory, who don't know any of the things we take for granted, any of the basics. They live in a different world. If you don't know God, and you don't know that you were created for a purpose, if you think that you are just a blind accident, that we are orphans in the cosmos and you're descended from a monkey, if you think that the only reason you're here is because of some chance collocation of atoms that happen to get together, you don't know how to live. Why is it that strong families have a high degree of religious orientation? What is there about faith? that makes for healthy homes. Well, I'll tell you one of the things. It gives human beings, every human being, a purpose in life. We know why we're here. Let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. I'm going to get in trouble with this one, but I'm going to give you an example anyway. I want you, when you're filling in your blanks, a Christian family is a spiritual island in a materialistic world. One of the abiding problems of America is our affluence. How many people here have been overseas? How many people have ever been? One of the first things going to strike you when you go overseas, if you go to any of the developing countries, is, oh my goodness, how much we've got in America. I've been, I've been, I don't know, a dozen countries or more around the world, and one of the things I always come back saying is, I never realized how much we have here. One of the besetting temptations of Americans is materialism, because we've just got so much. So much. Our children are being conditioned to be consumers and not capable human beings. And I'm going to demonstrate tangibly what I'm talking about here. Our children, unless we're very, very, very careful, are going to grow up to be greedy and materialistic because we live in a greedy, materialistic world. And we've got to teach there's another dimension. Didn't I, don't, don't I remember Jesus saying something about man does not live by... What was it again? Man does not live by... But by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Don't I remember in Luke 15, Jesus said something about a man's life does not consist in the abundance of what? Yeah, the abundance of his possessions. Wasn't Jesus constantly calling us back to the spiritual in life? Do you realize that people are happier when they have a spiritual dimension in their life? People are happier. Now, here's, here's the world we live in right now. 
Okay, out of my way. I'm going to Walmart. All right, we're consumers. All right, that's the world I live in. We got Walmart and El Dorado, Walmart's everywhere. Do you realize the average American child sees some 40,000 commercials a year? Let's pause for a couple of beats and let that one sink in. The average American child sees some 40,000 commercials a year, and advertisers spend $15 billion a year to persuade them to buy. I'm talking about kids. I'm talking about little kids. Researchers have actually identified several different child nagging styles that marketers can exploit, including sugar-coated, pity, pleading, threatening, and persistent. Now, what I'm trying to tell you is there are a lot of people spending a lot of money on research to turn our children into greedy little consumers. What are you going to do about it? How are you going to counter that? Do you realize that by the time this child graduates from high school, her brain will absorb 350,000 television commercials, 100,000 alcohol ads, and a daily barrage of sex and violence? What are you going to do about that? What are you going to do about that? Now, I'm going to come back to this tomorrow. But we have become so desensitized to the materialism in our world that it doesn't even register anymore. And we have got to get resensitized. Here's where I get in trouble. The United States has 4.5% of the world's populations and buys 45% of the world's toys. 45% of the world's toys. The average American child receives an average of 70 toys a year. Now, young people, I'm not against toys. <laughs> okay? I bought my boys toys too. But at some point, we got to say, enough. We got enough. And what we desperately need to learn in America is the word enough. Didn't the Bible teach us something about we've got to learn how to be content with what we have? And what does it do when we constantly train children, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. You ever been in the supermarket at Walmart and you heard a kid leading their mother or their father around, I've got to have this, 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 I've got to have this. Now, before you think I'm being moralistic, let me, let me tell you why I'm concerned about that. Higher consumer involvement by children can lead to depression, anxiety, low self-esteem, more psychosomatic complaints, and worse relationships with parents. Stuff doesn't satisfy. It has never worked with grown-ups. It will never work with kids. Here's what my, my real concern. Healthy families don't focus on stuff. They focus on relationships. Healthy families don't have mom and dad working overtime all the time to give the kids more, 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 more. They're spending time with their kids. Healthy families don't think that the purpose of life is to gain and amass more possessions. They understand that we're put on this world to serve God. And by the way, one of the most countercultural things Christians do is we come to church and give our money away, which makes absolutely no sense to the world. Because Every time the contribution plate comes around and you give generously, you're making a statement, this is the family that puts God first. You don't even, we don't even think about it in those terms. But it's true. We are making a statement about our values and who we are. We're Christians. 
Jesus said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and thieves break in and steal. But where does he say lay up your treasures? In heaven. Healthy families figure that out. They figure that out. And they have service in their life. And they have generosity in their life. And they have church in their life. And they have God in their life. Robert Cole, a fascinating fellow, Pulitzer Prize winning author, Harvard psychologist, has done just massive studies of American children. Here's what he concluded. He says, I think that what children in the United States desperately need is a moral purpose. And a lot of our children aren't getting that. They're getting parents who are very concerned about getting them into the right colleges, buying the best clothing for them, giving them an opportunity to live in neighborhoods where they'll lead fine and affluent lives and where they can be given the best toys, go on interesting vacations, and all sorts of things. People, he says, work very hard these days. And they're acquiring things that they feel are important to their children, and yet vastly more important things are not happening. They're not spending time with their children, at least not very much. Now, this is the, the expert on American children. You can listen to him or you can just listen to Jesus. The net result is the same, folks. If you want a healthy home and strong families and good kids, teach them a purpose in life. And our purpose is not here to get the most toys. Our purpose is here to serve God. And then finally, tonight, and we're going to be done, a positive peer group. A positive peer group. Parents worry a lot about inf bad influences, and rightfully so. Uh, the Bible still says in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, evil companionships corrupt good morals. That's true. I don't want my kids falling in with the wrong crowd. I don't want them following the wrong crowd. I don't want them giving in to peer pressure. But it is unrealistic to tell children, just go it alone, stand up to the crowd, just say no. Which is what the world says. Well, if you don't like drugs, just say no. If you don't like violence on TV, just say no. If you don't want to like the dirty movies, just say no. Folks, there's just so much to say no to in our society. And it's not realistic to tell kids, go it alone. Stand up to the whole American society. Adults don't do that, much less kids. Wouldn't it make a whole lot more sense to have some positive peer pressure. That is to say, to find a group of people who share your values. Wouldn't it be nice if we had a place where families could get together with other families who put God first and have a spiritual dimension in their life? Wouldn't it be nice if we had a place where people trying to do right and encourage each other to do right? Wouldn't it be nice if we had a place where somebody was constantly reminding us of the true and the high and the good and the noble values in life? Wouldn't it be nice? Well, wait a minute. I think we do have that place. I think it's called church. Isn't that what church is supposed to be? Wouldn't it be nice to have a positive peer group? Even adults need this. Doesn't the Bible say something about do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together or some are in the manner of but, meet, but encourage one another and so much more as you see the day approaching? We're supposed to spur one another on, he says, to love and good works. Even adults need a positive peer group. We need to be around other folks. God never intended for parenting to be a do-it-yourself project. Never intended for parents to have to do it 
alone. Recent book came out. You may be interested in looking at it. It's called More God, Less Crime. Written by a researcher named Byron Johnson. He did a meta-review of 273 studies of criminal causation to ask what it is that causes crime and what it is that prevents crime. One such study, Harvard researcher Richard Freeman interviewed 2,358 young black men in Boston, Chicago, and Philadelphia. Okay, these are individuals who are growing up in underprivileged environments. Would you like to know what they found when they did these huge, huge studies of crime? What causes it, what prevents it? Here it is in a nutshell. The more time young men spend in church, the less likely they are to spend time in prison. Isn't that amazing? That was so shocking that Byron Johnson got in trouble at his university and nearly got fired. In fact, he finally had to leave where he was teaching. They said, you can't come out with that. You can't say that. How dare you? How dare you say that? But it's true. Parenting, raising children, People is never intended to be a do-it-yourself project. Families are in the business of people-making. Of people-making. How do you make people? Where do you go to create capable human people? Well, God gives us families. We're in the business of making people, and that is a five-fold partnership. You need faithful parents godly Christian parents. You need a supportive, extended family. You need a positive community of believers. Even Jesus said, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Even at 12 years old, Jesus knew where he belonged. He belonged in church, okay? And you need a cooperative child. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with man. You need a gracious God. It's a five-fold partnership. I am so thankful that my two boys were raised in a good church. And College Avenue is a good church. I'm so thankful for all the Bible teachers who took a personal interest in my boys. I'm thankful for the scout leaders. One of the biggest influences in both of my boys' life was Wayne Harrell, one of our deacons, who's our scout leader. He, he just graduated his 41st Eagle Scout, which is phenomenal. Two of those are mine. And I'm so, both of my boys are Eagle Scouts. I am so thankful for the youth ministers. I am sorry that my boys grew up having dad as a preacher. Because <laughs> they, they I, do you realize I was the only preacher they ever heard the, their whole life till they grew up and left? But I'm thankful that it wasn't just me, that I had a good church family. If you're here tonight and you're trying to have a strong home and raise good kids and you're not in church, here's the good news. You found a good one. This is a good church, the Fountainhead Church. If you're here tonight and you're looking for a good church home, you talk to Chad, you talk to any of the elders, and you just ask them about the Fountainhead Church because, folks, if you want to have a strong home and good kids, we need to be in church. Now remember, we'll talk about this tomorrow. Strong families are not families without problems. They're families that solve their problems with the help 
of God, help of God. We're going to sing a song here. It's going to be a song of encouragement. If there's anyone here tonight who needs a good church home, if you're ready to place your membership, if there's anyone here who needs to become a Christian, we'll give you that opportunity as well. We always want to emphasize the importance of faith in our life. If we can help you with any spiritual need, let us know right now as we stand and sing together.